You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So we've been in this book of Matthew, right, for several weeks now. And uh, this book of Matthew, uh, as I stated last week, uh, is a book whose main theme is to display that Jesus is indeed the Jewish Messiah who has come to usher in the kingdom of God, right? Written to a Jewish audience. And so he's time and time again, Matthew will, uh, through his writing, present Jesus as divine, as the Messiah to the Jewish people. And this morning we come to this often quoted text in Christianity, right? And we will see this morning not, not a tamed Jesus, but one who demands uncontested allegiance uh, much like a revolutionary, right, throughout history. And much like it did when he was on earth today, this text will serve as a line drawn in the sand that will distinguish a true disciple of Jesus from a false one. We've all heard the idiom, you are what you eat, right? And what, is that, what does that mean? Obviously, it's not literal, If I eat broccoli, I'm not broccoli, right? But if we examine someone's life habits or uh, eating habits, um, we can tell a lot about them, right? If someone only eats fast food every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and they care not about uh, the health of their body, they they don't exercise, um, you can can make a conclusion about that person's uh, desires or uh, priorities, right? But if you see someone taking care of their body and what they put into it, this, you know, the same thing goes for that. So much like that idiom today, today we'll see as we dissect this text, this undeniable truth uh, that you are what you love. And so we must ask ourselves, I must ask myself as we go through this text, what do I love most? What, what do you love most? Because what we love most is revealed in our actions and what we prioritize and by where our greatest allegiance lies. So two weeks ago, uh, Marshall's last sermon before he went on sabbatical, as I kind of summarized last week as well, uh, but two weeks ago he preached from Matthew 5, and, and that section between Matthew 5 and, and, and 7, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus was with authority preaching and teaching, and through that, showing himself to be Messiah, right? And then last week, we saw that um, in chapter 8, Jesus showed himself to be Messiah, uh, the Messiah bringing the kingdom through authoritative demonstration of miracles and healings, right, of the outcast. And today, uh, our text, um, Jesus shows himself to be divine Messiah through his authoritative call for uncontested allegiance from the heart of his disciples. Let's jump right in. Let me read verses 34 through 36 for you again. It says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
So to begin this passage, Jesus uses this phrase, I have come, right? And I don't want us to miss that because we could go straight to the peace and the sword, but, but there is something here that points to the nature of the person of Jesus. How? Well, if, if you think back during that period of time, no rabbi, no Jewish teacher uh, would, would speak in those terms. No, no rabbi would stand in front of his students uh, and say, I have come into the world for this. Because that would imply pre-existence. That would imply that he's more than human. And right, so once again, Christ is showing himself to be Messiah, divine, God in the flesh, by saying, I have come. And he points to the fact that he is indeed God in the flesh. The divine Messiah who, throughout this uh, book of Matthew up to this point, has shown himself to be Messiah with authority. And then he says uh, that he's come into the world for what? He's come into the world not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And now this would have struck the followers of Jesus in an interesting way. We know, we know Jesus today, we know he is the Prince of Peace indeed, right? We know uh, that one of the promises of the Messiah is to bring shalom, is to bring completeness, wholeness, right? Restoration, to bring peace. So why did Jesus say that he came not to bring peace, but the sword? Well, if we look at the previous portion of this chapter, beginning in verse uh, 16, right? it says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We jump down to verse 21. He says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. He tells them he's, um, that his disciples are not above their teacher. That if it happened to him, it will happen to his disciples as well. But he tells them in verse 26 and again in verse 31, to not fear, because God cares for them. So it is in this context that, that Jesus then says, do not think that I have come to bring peace. After he's preparing his disciples, telling them that they will experience persecution, they must have been uh, uh, wondering, like, wait, why? Like, why? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were supposed to bring peace and restoration. Why will we be, will we be persecuted? And so he, he continues in verse 34 and 35 and says that he came to bring this sword. What does that mean exactly? Well, we know, we know it doesn't mean um, that he was in agreement with the zealots. The zealots was, uh, they were a group of people in that time period who um, wanted to revolt against the Roman Empire and they would use violence and force. So we know that's not what Jesus meant. It doesn't go in, uh, along with and align with his character. So what did, what did he mean? He means that when there is two kingdoms, brothers and sisters, that are opposed to each other, one kingdom evil and oppressive, the other kingdom just and good, for there to be ultimate peace in all the realm, there needs to be war. 
There needs to be war against the evil and oppressive kingdom so that the just and the good kingdom will finally establish everlasting peace. So he's reminding his followers that they are still in a world where the kingdom of evil still has power. And he's reminding them that this sword is this, is this opposition that these two kingdoms have towards one another and that they will experience it in the places that they least expect it. And we'll see that as we continue. Jesus is essentially saying that when you place your faith in Him, it will affect your closest, deepest relationships. When you place your faith in Jesus, it doesn't just change your life, right? To, to a certain degree, it changes the lives of those around you. Whatever you used to do with your friends that don't believe, they no longer have that friend. Your family, if they do, if they do believe, They've gained a brother and sister in the faith, but if they don't believe, well, we know those, those of you who don't have uh, uh, Christian parents know what that can be like. The mission statement that Jesus uses here is meant to shock his hearers, is meant to cause them to raise an eyebrow, because peace, shalom, was a, not only a human aspiration, but was the promise, as I stated earlier, of this Jewish Messiah. We see this in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Zechariah 9, and t- uh, 9, verse 10, where it talks about this everlasting peace that the Messiah will bring. And then, let me read verse 35 and 36 again. It says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So, in, in, the, in this time period that Jesus was living in, um, the family unit um, was where your deepest allegiance lied. And for a son to be turned against his father was shameful. For a son to break his allegiance to his father for any reason was shameful. And so Jesus is specifically using the family unit to prove his point. Same thing goes for the daughter. Just like the, 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 the son looked up to the father, the head of the household, so a daughter in a similar way looked up to the mother. And for the daughter to be set against her mother was shameful as well. And same goes for a, a daughter-in-law who's brought into the family against her mother-in-law. He sums it up in verse 35, and he makes, makes it general to show his hearers that uh, if their enemies can come from their very own household, which would be in that time period the last place where they would have expected hostility, then really there is no other relationship that is ultimately safe from being threatened by the loyalty to Jesus. Why? Because it is 
It is this place, the family unit, where deep abiding affection lies and binds them together. Whoever loves, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me, Jesus goes on to say, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So now Jesus transitions from this shocking statement that he, he, he did not come to bring peace in this sense, but the sword. And so he, he establishes what true peace will look like because peace isn't necessarily the absence of conflict. He stated to them that this, this sword, this allegiance to Jesus will affect their closest relationships. And now he transitions over into demanding supreme love from them. Jesus begins by demanding this supreme, uncontested love. And we must ask ourselves, who, who can do this but God himself? What other rabbi, what other Jewish teacher in that time could have demanded allegiance, now catch this, allegiance to them, not to their movement, not to their religion, not to their sect, but to them. It's only God himself that could have done that. I, I love reading history. I love reading about uh, revolutionaries in particular. And, and one of the, one of the one of the honorable qualities of a good revolutionary, of a great revolutionary, is that he is able to, to unite and rile people up to give their life away for a worthy cause, right? But a, a, an honorable revolutionary, in my opinion, would never demand unquestioned, uncontested allegiance to them as a person but to the movement and to the cause that is greater than them. No man, no man is worthy to demand that kind of allegiance unless that man is also God, unless that man is God in the flesh. And we have one man in history, this man in history, Jesus Christ, who did demand supreme and uncontested allegiance to himself. And he does so, he does so by challenging, as I stated earlier, the family unit, which was the place where the deepest seated allegiance lied. He didn't just demand allegiance, though, like a revolutionary would to his movement. Revolutionaries care if you act. They don't care out of what motivation they care, you're willing to take up that rifle and go. Whether you're trembling, whatever motivation you have, but Jesus here, Jesus cares that you act and that your allegiance is rooted in love and in joy. Hear what a pastor in New York, Rich Perez, has to say about this. He says this. He says, the real measure of our commitment to Jesus 
is not whether we are willing to make sacrifices, but whether we are able to make them with joy. So that is the distinction. That is the distinction between an earthly leader, an earthly revolutionary that demands allegiance. And I've read, I've read about a lot of them, and I, I mean, I honor some of them, and I, I, I admire their leadership. But all those stand in no comparison to the leadership and the, um, the, the Messiah and His demand and call that you would love Him above all people. And really, He's just pointing His disciples back to the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God right, above all else, with all your heart, your mind, your strength. He challenges them to have Him, Jesus, as their supreme love. And then He moves on to calling them to act in verse 38. 38, it says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross up and follow me is not worthy of me. So when His disciples heard this, give you kind of a mental image or a mental picture of what they might have seen. Jesus hadn't yet talked to them about him going to the cross and dying. That discourse hadn't happened yet. So picture yourself in that time period and you're uh, listening to Jesus teach and call for unquestioned allegiance and then he, he challenges your allegiance to your family and says, if your allegiance to me is not above that of uh, towards that, the allegiance that you have towards your family, you're not worthy to be my disciple now. And if you don't take up your cross and follow me, it would have been like, what do you, wait, what? You want me to be potentially condemned as a criminal with no honor in, in the sight of this world, carry the very instrument that could lead to my death, that will lead to my death? for you, and if I don't do this, I'm not worthy to be your disciple. And the, the, See, today, we have the gospel, we have the fullness and the completion of the canon, right, the scriptures. So when we read this, te this text, we picture Jesus on the cross. We picture Jesus dying for us, and, and oh, how holy and honorable that was. But they didn't have that mental picture when Jesus said this. They thought of a criminal with no honor. They thought of a criminal who was on his way to his very own execution and the most worst for, the worst form of execution known at that time. The most painful form of execution. So he challenges their ultimate allegiance, tells them it should be placed on them and then he challenges their life, the allegiance that they have in their life. Are you willing to give it all for me if need be? Are you willing to die without honor in the, in the sight of this world? See, brothers, brothers and sisters, we think of, we read of old missionaries, right, that have died, that have been martyred. We read, right, books on these martyrs that have died. And we read about their stories and we honor them. 
and we admire their faith. And today the church looks up to them and says, and I, I, I pray that I have that kind of faith today to walk out my obedience to Jesus today. But can you picture, can you imagine being one of those brothers and sisters that lived in that time period that was eaten alive by lions? Can you imagine even being one of those brothers and sisters in India, in the Middle East, in China today? Those who get persecuted, those who get martyred, brothers and sisters, in the sight of the government, in the sight of the world around them, they have no honor. But they're willing to die being looked at as a criminal. So Jesus is asking us, are you willing to die if you aren't able to defend yourself? Are you willing to die and be looked at by your culture as a bigot, a criminal, when you know very well that you're innocent? And it is in this verse that the very daunting cost of discipleship. But we find both a, a glorious good news at the same time that we find a weighty, weighty call to us. Why is this glorious good news? Those of you who are Christians here know but that it is because Jesus did not call us to do something that he himself was not willing to do. It was him, it was him who took upon himself the sin of sinners like you and me. It was him who, who carried that cross up to Golgotha and was willing to be crucified, was willing to be seen as a blasphemer, was willing to die with no honor, for our sake. One of the most honorable, another honorable quality of a revolutionary is that he is willing to die on the front lines with his soldiers, right? That's why we love Braveheart. I mean, that's the picture that we see of a great leader who, who calls his people, if need be, die for this cause, and then runs to the front lines and says, I will die with you. But brothers and sisters, we have a greater one than a revolutionary. He did not say, I will die with you. He said, I will die for you. The wrath and the judgment that you deserve, I will take it upon myself. And yes, I'm calling you to a weighty task. I'm calling you to give up your life. If need be, die for me. But know that I will go before you. And I will die in your place so that the greatest form of death you will never have to experience. Separation from the Father. Brothers and sisters, and as I stated earlier, that Jesus doesn't want just our allegiance and our actions, but he wants us to do it out of joy. Brothers and sisters, he for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. It says that he endured this cross, despising the shame in Hebrews, and is now seated at the right hand of majesty on high. 
Christ had his will set on going up to Golgotha, to Calvary. There was no plan B for him. He was not looking back. He carried that cross to his death. And it gives some, it gives some real depth to this quote I, I said earlier, that the real measure of our commitment to Jesus is not whether we are willing to make sacrifices, but whether we are able to make them with joy. And brothers and sisters, because Jesus has gone before us, because he went to the cross and endured something we will never have to endure with joy, that being the wrath of God in our place. Brothers and sisters, we, because of him, if we are in him, our faith placed in him, we have the power through the spirit. God empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that sounds, it sounds weighty. It should be. But we know, we know we, we are prone to wander. And I don't, want, I don't want to miss that. We are prone to throw that cross down on our way and run the other direction. Because we are sinful and because we are weak, and because we care too much about what other people think about us. But in His grace, because He has credited us with His perfect record of obedience, His grace not only covers our sin when we try to run from faithfulness, but it also empowers us to grow in godliness and in obedience to Him. When we wander, if we are in Him, His grace draws us back. His grace covers us. His grace not only covers our sin, but His grace empowers us to fight that sin. His grace empowers us to walk in this manner that He's calling us to do. See, He doesn't call you to do something, brothers and sisters, that He won't equip you to do. He won't call me to do something that He will not give me the strength to do. Because he accomplished it for us. Because he went before us and bore his cross. We have the power through him to carry our own cross. To be willing to die for him if need be. And you see, in America, we, that kind of, some of that is, is there's a disconnect there. If we lived in, an, in, a, in a country where Christianity was illegal, where to say Jesus is Lord meant your head. I get this, this picture. I, I heard a, a preacher a, a while back give this description of uh, uh, Christians in uh, the first century, and uh, they're lined up, and kind of the, the, some, the Roman um, uh, leader is, is walking by, and he's commanding everyone to say Caesar is Lord. And the Christians are at the end, and they're, they're shaking. They're, they're, they're scared, but they won't budge. And they get to them and say, say, Caesar is Lord, and they say, Jesus is Lord. And their heads are chopped off. Where was the honor in that? They chopped their head off, and they took their body. Many of those brothers and sisters are in glory, and we know nothing about them. 
And that's the kind of allegiance Jesus is calling us to. And we need to acknowledge that some of that we don't comprehend because we live in America. But that's okay. It doesn't mean that the Spirit can't empower us to live in a manner where we are willing to do that if the time came. He will give us the strength to do it. Because it is in this, it is in being willing to lose our lives for His sake. It is in doing that where we find our truest joy, our our deepest joy. Let's move on to our last verse. Let me read it for you, 39. It says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To find your own life, Jesus says, you, you actually end up losing it, right? What does, he, what does he mean? He means here that if you are more concerned with preserving the earthly life you want here, then your allegiance is ultimately to this earthly life and the eternal life with God is lost. Not that you lost salvation, but it's actually, it's, it's reflective, it's uh, it shows that you actually have your allegiance elsewhere. Like Jesus said about false prophets, you, you will know them by their fruit, right? And if you, he says, if you lose your life, if you're willing to lose your life for his sake, then it is there that you truly find it. It is there that we truly find. Find it. And to lose our life for His sake means that we are willing to lose everything here on earth, not just material, but as I stated earlier and several times, the honor, the prestige, the approval of our friends, the culture surrounding us that is not Christian. If we're willing to lose all of that for the sake of knowing and following Jesus, and that shows that our allegiance is truly lying in, our, our allegiance is, is truly rooted in Christ. It reflects that you're a child of His. And though your journey on this earth may be hard and painful, yet you know that you have this irrevocable promise that God has given to us that one day we will spend eternity with Him who is the wellspring of our joy. I love when, I love when things aren't planned, but really, really it's God that plans them. And so um, when, when they read Philippians, and I'm going to read it now, um, it, it was, I, I, I know God wants us to listen to this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him 
in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that, I, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here we have, brothers and sisters, a man who persecuted Christians, a man who, who, who was pleased to see Christians die. And on his way to persecute more Christians, God knocks him off of his horse. Jesus appears to him. He becomes a servant of Jesus, a slave to Christ, an apostle. And earlier in this uh, chapter, Philippians 3, I, I read Philippians 3, 7 through 11, but earlier he goes on and he kind of li- gives a list of his resume, everything that he was. A Jew circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. In regards to the law, he, was, he said he was blameless. Man, he, he had a great track record in the Jewish religion. He was a golden child at the feet of one of the best rabbis in that time, Gamaliel. He had everything going for him in the Jewish faith, but he says whatever gain he had in his previous life, he counts it now as loss for the sake of Christ. Just to know him and be to be united in, in Christ, not just in the victories and in the joys, but in the sufferings and in the persecutions. We need to, we need to read these texts and then be, be well aware of our surroundings, that it is very easy to walk out of this door this morning and be met with, luxury, to be met with abundance, to be met with comfort, um, and for this word to fall by the wayside. And that is why this text begs of me, brothers and sisters, begs of us, begs of you to answer this question, that what are we doing? What, what can we do to foster Jesus as our supreme love in our current context? What does that look like? For it is only when our affections, our love's allegiance is supremely to Jesus that we will begin to to be willing to lose whatever it is we gain in this earth for the sake of Christ. And so, very, very practical. If if, if this is not a part of our life, then this is the foundation, right? Prayer and, and reading of Scripture living and dwelling in community. And so that's why proximity matters. So allegiance to Jesus trickles down to the very small and what we may call mundane things of the everyday life. It is how we reorient our life day to day to reflect that Jesus is our ultimate love, that our allegiance is ultimately to Christ and not to our career not to our comforts. And maybe we, maybe we examine our hearts and we find it lacking. Maybe we find that there are some things in our hearts right now that have ultimate allegiance and it's not Jesus. There is grace. There is grace to draw you back. There is grace 
There is grace to empower you. Like the great hymn, Rock of Ages, says it's, He can give us that spirit and, and empower us to come to Him as, as, as filthy as we might feel. He says, Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain, fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So I want us to, to walk out encouraged that Christ has gone before us, that He has accomplished it in our place, that He did not call us to do something that He Himself did not do. And He did it with joy, and He gives us the strength and the power through the Spirit to live a life of ultimate allegiance and supreme love to Him. What do we, what do we love most? Because what we love most will be revealed in our actions, what we prioritize, and by where our greatest allegiance, allegiance lies. Let's pray. Father, we ask, we ask that this, this weighty call that you've placed on us, that we would look to Christ and not look to our own works to try to live up to this standard, uh, for we will, we will be crushed by it. It is only through faith in Jesus. It is only through being covered by your perfect obedience that we can be empowered to walk in ultimate allegiance to you. We ask that you give us this strength, Father, through the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.